Hi Millie, how you doing? Good. How are you? Yeah, very good, thank you. Thanks for coming on. Sure, of course, of course, anytime. Um, like everyone else, if you could just take as far back as you'd like to start, I was just people are just really interested in hearing um, people's journeys about how they've arrived from A and ended up at I don't know X, Y, or Z with the journey still to go. So, um, so I um, let's go back to uh, my dad's a hairdresser. Um, and um, so I kind of grew up in a hair salon in central London in the 70s and um, my parents emigrated to America in 1979 um, and I just think it was about 11 or 12 and um, um, I just felt I was quite bullied at school so I didn't I didn't really enjoy it I mean I was fairly academic good at maths um, but not really interested in being at school because I just didn't like it yeah. and so my dad had said um I had started working actually because in those days you weren't sort of you could work at 13 yeah, so yeah I started definitely. working in a hair salon on a Saturday afternoon I loved 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 making tips so I washed hair made tips uh, really enjoyed making money and um and then when I was around sort of 15 16 just really not interested in school very much moved back to London to live with my grandparents. And so was that started. just a weekend job, Millie? Uh, and, and yeah, yeah, it was just on Saturdays and holidays and things like that, yeah. I just really liked the sort of client interaction. I really enjoyed yeah. that. I really thought that um, a lot of what hairdressers do is uh, really giving confidence to the client and it's, it's just a bit more than a haircut. Really, it's a yeah, bit someone more I was speaking of... to referred to it as therapy almost like they're almost counselors, like listening to people all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a real sort of um, you know, above and beyond, you know, there's a whole process of the client comes in, there's a whole journey of checking them in, taking their coat, putting the gown on, you know, the consultation, taking them to have their hair washed got to be very careful you don't want to get them wet you don't want to mess up their makeup you don't want to overly talk to them while they're relaxing and having a shampoo but you want to find out you know what kind of conditioner you want and you're assessing what their hair is like and what their scalp is like it's very personal some people have like you know uh, sebaceous cysts on their scalp or they've got dandruff or they've got psoriasis or eczema or, you know there's tons of different things that you you discover about people when you're washing their hair and um I cry never even thought of all that. I, yeah, you know, it's, just, I just it's quite intimate, just, yeah, you know, really it's is. quite an intimate thing. Um some people suffer from hair loss or they've got kids and they come in with lice, or you know, yeah. you just don't know. And but I really like that sort of whole, you know, knowing whether to chat or not to chat or what to do, and then you then you seat them, you take the client and you seat them in the chair and you get them a coffee. And this is like you're an assistant, you're not even a hairdresser at this point, you're like you are just a sort of, it's like, you're like a guide, you know, you're sort of guiding them through this process, but making them feel as comfortable as possible, but always sort of standing behind the stylist and just being really polite. It's, it's yeah. quite subservient, but it's, it's also quite rewarding in a way because you yeah, are definitely. just being ultimately very polite and, and very helpful to somebody. And that can result in tips. And so I was, quite good at that and I really enjoyed it and I made good tips and um um I I just I absolutely loved it actually and um so my, my dad got me a job working for Tony and Guy wow, and okay. I enrolled myself it's about 15 16 enrolled myself on in a youth training scheme so in those days you could do a youth training scheme and you would work five days in the salon and then one day a week you would work for the company uh uh, but you would learn something different. So my my youth training scheme was um, sort of product because Tony and Guy had just started bottling product okay. at their offices or sort of studio place in, in um, Chelsea Wharf. And um, so one day a week on a Monday I would go and we would help literally bottle shampoos and conditioners. And so that, so that was really interesting. And then, um, but it was like an apprenticeship and I guess I was really good again at the sort of guiding and 
you know, making coffee and washing hair, but hairdressing just went straight over my head. I think, <laughs> right, okay. I think cause I'm kind of like maths wise, I'm quite good at algebra, but I'm not very good at geometry and it requires a lot of geometry to cut hair. Yeah. And also like hair color is just very science-based. Yeah. yeah. I don't really understand that either. So, yeah. um, so I, uh, you know, out of sheer despair, I think I sort of went back to America, got another job in a hair salon that my dad got me. And then I ended up um, uh, moving to New York and working for um, a, a hair salon there called Bumble and Bumble that then yeah. became a brand. But when I worked there, he didn't have the product. Um, it was just a salon. Okay. Um, and on 56. How old were you then, Millie, when you moved to uh, New about York? About 18, 18, maybe. 18, and 19. was the New York, you, you at that point, had you decided, I want to move to New York and give that a go? What's yeah, in New I'd York? Gone there, I'd it? gone there on a. I, 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 I'd gone to visit a friend of my fam parents who was um, who was like one of the head designers at Ralph Lauren for footwear, and I think I wanted to go to New York because I had some friends that were there, who had come from London, and I wanted to go. And my dad said, "Well, you can go to New York. We've got to stay with him." And I stayed with him. And then he, sadly, he died of AIDS, and um, um, and that was obviously you know in the eighties, in the mid eighties, yeah. and it was AIDS was rife, um, and um, uh, but. I sort of spent a lot of time in the village and uh, in Greenwich Village. And although it was a very sad time with AIDS, et cetera, it was also quite an amazing time to be in New York. And I just felt like I owned it. I just felt like that was a place for me. It wasn't London wow. where my grandparents lived. It wasn't LA where my parents moved to. It just, I love New York. Oh, it was you because it was your own thing. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was just, it was quite, it was definitely about that. And so I um, I uh, worked for Bumble and then uh, I lost that job and went to go work for a hair salon called Parallel who actually put me on the floor. So they allowed me to cut hair, which was ridiculous because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> Why did um, you lose the job at Bumble? If you don't mind me asking. Uh, I don't actually think, I think I quit. He says he fired me. My oh, right, okay. So I don't know. We've always had a difference of opinion on that. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm still friendly with him. I'm still friendly with him. Yeah. So maybe, but um, uh, I don't know. I was out clubbing every night. You know, I'd show up. Like and, you do seven o'clock in the morning and I'd sit in front of the salon waiting for him to open it. Um, I was always at work. I didn't really call in sick a lot. And I certainly didn't, you know, in that respect, I was quite a hard worker, yeah. but I was going out every night. I mean, you know. Well, you're 18 and you're in a city like New York. I wasn't really getting anywhere, you know, with my career. But, but one of the things that I did quite find interesting at Bumble is they had like a little sort of alcove off the side of the salon. And in that alcove they had, um, makeup and there was a woman that sort of um sold the makeup in that area and there was William Tuttle I want to say there's a bit of ill maquillage and there was um Mac but Mac was a makeup brand that was only sold in hair salons at the time oh, okay. and it was only sold in two hair salons in New York so obviously it was Canadian made founded but um, these two hair, two hair salons in New York owned it. So when Michael fired me, because I used to spend a lot of time over there in that little alcove at the salon playing with makeup, which might have been why he fired me, I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, the woman that ran the makeup section said, why don't you go and talk to my friends who own the salon called Parallel? They also sell Mac, um, but I think they'll put you on the floor, whatever. So I got a job there. I mean, it literally lasted like three weeks. I was like, I'm not going to do <laughs> okay. this. I can't cut hair. And I sort of, with my tail between my le legs, went back to LA. And um, my dad ended up sort of, I think he sort of realized that getting me a job at salons that his friends owned wasn't going to work. <laughs> right. Because I wasn't going to stick it out. But he got me a job at um, uh, a, a boutique that was just opening called Shuemura. It was a Japanese makeup brand that was launching in the US and they were launching in LA and he got me the job there. But I, um, my boss quit a few weeks into opening um, and maybe it was a few months and maybe my memory doesn't serve me right, but um, it wasn't doing very well. People really didn't know what it was. I didn't understand it. I mean, it was a very unusual brand because back then in the eighties, you didn't really, you weren't really allowed to use testers like you were now. And, they came in and there was this massive long bar full of 
testers and products that you could try and people would go what is this you know it sort of looked like an art studio and it was in a sort of sh a, a shop that's shaped like a fishbowl and um um so um that was all very odd but anyway she quit i then took her job so we turned that store around and made a profit in three months and then wow. about a year later i left and opened the new york store on 72nd in amsterdam <laughs> about 1920 maybe bit wow, about amazing. around my 2021 20, but then i then i was invited to go to japan after after new york and um i um went to a conference sure conference i loved him he was definitely a mentor to me and they asked me to come to europe and open a store in harvey nicks which i did which was 1990 which i would have been 23 i think and in what then. way was he a mentor to you millie like he was just so like so radical like so renegade like everything that he did was slightly slightly rebellious so you know he was obviously you know he was a sort of i have no idea no understanding of what how old he would have been but i would imagine maybe in his 60s when i met him he had blue hair he was i would imagine he was uh, you know struggled with his identity in a lot of ways being yeah. japanese and and um but just super creative and just you know he made his way in hollywood you know he ended up being shirley mclean's makeup artist on a movie called my geisha that must have been really you know his identity must have been slightly you know he wasn't your average way bandy or william tuddle so he stepped yeah. into a role there so that must have been really challenging and you know, he didn't speak the language as, as, as well as he could have done um, back then. But um, I don't know. I think he was just, you know, he once told me, you know, you should be married three times. <laughs> <laughs> he said, man should only be married for about 20 years. He goes, and, and now that we live till eight to 80, you should be married, you know, 20 to 40, 40 to 60, 60 to 80. That was oh, his okay. theory. Excellent. <laughs> and I just thought, you Got know, for, for, for a guy that seemed like an old man at the time or older, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm 53, so I'm not far off his age now. But, you know, I thought that was really radical, you know, to think like that, to actually. Yeah. And also he he was very clever. He, he sort of remember him saying to me that the thing that he was most um, most uh, concerned about or that the challenge that he thought the beauty industry would face would be female pattern baldness. Right, okay. Which I thought was an interesting concept of women losing their hair, which obviously, as we know, women's hair is thinning. Yep. Um, and also he was very forward thinking in terms of uh, being a Japanese makeup brand, but yet um, creating and having his product, some of his accessories manufactured in China and also uh, his brushes made in Korea. He said Korea was the future of beauty. I mean, and this was in the 80s. Yeah, that's So, crazy. you know, he was really... He was just a visionary, you know. Yeah, he went out on a limb. He really did, I and mean, he was amazing. Um, so I worked for him for quite some time. Launched Shuamora here, and then I guess Shuamora was such a hit, and it was way before, like it was before Mac and you know Laura Mercier and all those other brands. Um, and then but he must have had loads of belief in you as well. So did you? Oh yeah, no, he was yeah. really he was really trusting in me. I mean, they brought me to Japan. I went to this conference. I was the only woman at the conference. It was full of Japanese men. Was one French guy, and um, and he, you know, he would show ideas for new products, prototypes, and he would ask me what I thought. Um, he also allowed me to develop some. So basically, what happened was is that when the um, when the products launched in the US um, and in the UK, the colours were great. Uh, it, let's say the eyeshadows, for example, but the um, brown eyeshadows were quite orangey um which just kept, they needed a little bit of green in them to make them a little bit more taupey if you yeah. know what i mean yeah so i felt that like that was much more slightly more sophisticated so what i did was i would break things down and i would mix it up and then i would show him what i meant so um he allowed me to propose a sort of some new product development ideas yeah, which amazing. went into production then became bestsellers. So that was, 
you know, like I felt like he really did go out on a limb for me, actually, because it's it good really you had did. the courage to do that as well, isn't it? Because especially when you just described him, not like you're almost in awe of him, but he's this amazing guy that you felt like you had that courage. Because a lot of people would just go, yeah, no, that's great. That's great, wouldn't they? But you've... Yeah, I don't know. I just felt like he sort of, he, you know, he would ask me what I thought. But also the thing was, I was on the front line. So I was actually selling product to customers and then dealing with all the makeup artists and I think he was really open to that and also I don't I mean even now at days even with the British Beauty Council I don't really sort of say this is my opinion you have to listen to a lot of people to sort of gather consensus before I submit something so back then it was very much you know these are what the customers want this is what they find challenging they would like you know a bluer red lipstick because there were certain hues that were very popular globally, but there were certain tones in those hues that were um, probably more targeted towards the sort of the Chinese or Japanese skin tones. I wouldn't have said that there was, you know, a lot of people walked into the stores right at the beginning and would say, um, well, do you have anything for it for you know English women or something? You know, the foundations weren't off, <laughs> you know, they were yeah. fine. It was the the powders and the creams that were slightly that needed a little tweak. And that's an often times to do with um the colour of the eyes. Oh really? Yeah. So, you know, like there was nothing necessarily uh, the oranges were great with blue eyes, but you had nothing sort of almost to sort of work with greener eyes or hazel eyes or the eye colors anyway it was it was just you know i spent a lot of time playing with makeup yeah i really loved it it's still <laughs> one of my favorite things to play with really and um um and uh so that sort of brought me back to london really to harvey nichols and and then um makeup artist Ruby Hammer and actually um, journalist Anna-Marie Solovey. They came into um, Harvey Nicks one morning at 7 a.m. to shoot before we opened um, for a feature in Elle magazine called Portrait of an Artist. Ruby was the, the sort of the story. It was about what makeup artists did and how they shopped for product in London. And then Anna-Marie was her interviewing her. She was a beauty director at Elle, beauty editor at Elle. And then uh, we all became friends and then Ruby must have told her husband about me and um, they wanted to bring Aveda to the UK. And my dad knew Horst Reckelbacher. So Horst wrote me into the contract as a key person <laughs> because obviously he knew my crazy. dad. Right. Yeah, it's all sort of, and then Tweezerman, really you know. So Dal Lemania, her own Tweezerman. Um, I ended up convincing him to let me buy sort of 20 tweezers to sell them here because he had sold me some tweezers when I ran the shop in LA. He's a windsurfer from Seattle. Yeah, right. So, um, and I sold them like overnight. And then I realized that I'm not a distributor. I didn't want to be do that. I mean, it's just sort of one thing leads to another. Anyway, eventually the woman that was the buyer at Harvey Nichols when we launched Shoe & More and moved to Boots, she called me up, her name was Anne Berry. She's now at Avon. She called me up and she said, um, do you think Vader would want to launch in Boots? And I said, probably not, probably never. Uh, <laughs> still haven't. And um, I said, well, come and talk to you. So I went with George Hammer, Ruby's husband, to Boots. And then on the way back, George had had the Sunday Times style or Sunday Times culture, I think, section or magazine in his in his bag. And he was reading it and there was an image of, these two Russian girl shoots maybe I'm making an assumption but it's probably likely and it was like an article about Russian prostitutes or something I don't know and then he sort of came up with the idea for Ruby and Millie which was a makeup brand that we developed and at that point I'd already done some product development so I felt really confident in that area and also I'm quite sort of uh, mathematical and I'm quite I like an excel spreadsheet yeah so um it sort of after a few meetings it sort of got to the point where we were going to develop this range and so I guess essentially I kind of like laid it out and mapped it out and then Ruby and I kind of worked on all the product development together um but uh, I could immediately I immediately knew what I wanted yeah um and I can still remember that spreadsheet and visualize it and I can remember where I was sitting when I developed it all 
And um, and then that was Ruby and Millie, and that launched in 90, well, 96, we started and launched 98. Wow, the um, launch then, okay. Yeah, so that was quite, quite a bizarre, it was quite <laughs> bizarre because I had just had my first child, so that was like sort of a bit of a whirlwind, you know, crazy. <laughs> yeah time but we developed 365 products that's quite a lot it's a seven million pound investment people don't spend that kind of money anymore do they that's insane well, isn't it and maybe, so maybe fenty but that's a lot of products isn't it mm. where and when you because of um where you've been how did you know you hadn't actually developed products before that had you other than working with, no. On, on, and no. so where did you, how did you I, and Ruby know where to begin with that? Was was that just learnings on the job, or did you have like mentors? Yeah, no, it was massively with? learnings on the job. But the thing thing is, like, a lot of it is really logical. Like, color is quite logical, isn't it? Yeah. So that made sense to me, and also, I understood the sort of. Um, I understood um, how you sort of, how if you've got pigment and binder and a base, I kind of understood how that work came together really in a weird way. Right. Because I, I was like listening to someone the other day on, or I read something where someone was like, you know, I want this to be really highly pigmented. Well, you need more to carry the pigment. You can't just drop tons of pigment in something that's very light. Yeah. or there's not enough of it. It feels like things, I mean, the irony is I can't bake a cake, but I, I feel like things need equal <laughs> measure. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and actually from the off with Ruby and Millie, I totally knew what I wanted because there were textures that I loved and there were things that I really didn't love. Like I, I hate when there's, I don't like silicone in, in formulations. I find that it slips all over the place. Okay. And it washes the pigment out. It feels like it thins it out to me. You can't put enough in there. So I was really liked a mineral oil base that would hold a lot of pigment. And then, and it felt very rich to me. And there was that sort of, um, our eyeshadows were made in a, in a lab in Aberdeen. It was like a flurry system. Okay. They don't do it anymore, unfortunately. It's probably illegal. <laughs> probably toxic or something. But I really liked it. Um, not the not the way they did it, but you know. Yeah. Um, and I like if you're going to have something frosty, I think shimmer works really well in lighter colours. But I like quite a heavy frost in a sort of blue or a green. You want it to look like a sort of almost reptilian, you know. But um, and I don't like a multicoloured mica. I don't like it. I like it to be cut one colour. Like I hate when you get that multicoloured thing going on. Um, so you really know what it is you like and stuff when so as it was <laughs> yeah. know, was there ever a conflict or did it just really work and we no you... no no we always agreed on everything like that funny isn't it we always agreed um, we um, no we I think we were very similar in that regard in, in terms of so, so what happened was is that I mapped it out originally so um, I said we would have um, let's say, for example, 10 lipstick colors. So there'd be white, yellow, orange, red, purple, blue, green, beige, brown, black. There's always going to be 10 colors. And then could we have a white lipstick? Well, if you did, it would have to have a shimmer in it. That was logical. You can't have a matte white lipstick. That looks awful. And then you might want one that's a bit yellower, one that's a bit pinker. So what we did was we kind of mapped it out and then it was almost like blue like for example in the eyeshadows blue was always the one that you could have the most different variations in so that got so you have we sort of started with blue if that makes sense yeah so you could have a shimmer a frost a matte a pale one with a bit of white in it we just kind of in that respect i followed the spectrum of color it just seemed logical to me um in black you know, you could have a matte black, I, but I think we had a really glossy, glossy black and maybe a real a shimmer black, but not really a frost, frosted black lipstick. And then what we did was we had a black, a white, 
And then I thought, actually, what we need is a gold or silver because that makes a really nice collection of base lipsticks. So you could put yeah. reds and oranges over those and those would be really nice bases. And then, I don't know, just everything sort of, you know, felt like it, I, it, there was never, ever an argument. And, and what we did was we... Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of skews. And then what, what I did was we got um, cream, not cream, kind of skin colored paper, but grainy paper. And we swatched all our favorite products and then coded everything. And then we uh, redid them as a spectrum. And then we did textures for each one. So let's say we had red lipsticks. We had 10, let's say we have five red lipsticks. There was, you know, obviously an orange one. Uh, there was an orange one end and a blue one end, and in the middle was just sort of clear red, and then the blue was matte, but the orange one had a bit of shimmer in it because orange can do with a little bit of yellow or gold in it. So you're talking like this is so obvious to everyone, right? So when, I don't know if it's like it's just that's where my mind think thinks. So uh, you know when you because before we started the actual call, you were talking about mapping out like your three-year plan and stuff like that, and you talk about things being logical. Is it because you see it all in your head, so you just put it down on paper for other people to have a look at and for you to see? Well, sometimes I can't be bothered to put it down on paper. <laughs> sometimes but, it just stays in my head. I don't know. But it, I don't know. I just see things like visually. Just... Like I can see, like I can literally right now visualize a matte red lipstick that's got a lot of blue in it, a glossy one in the middle because that's a clear red and that should be really glossy, and then the orange end of the spectrum like I said, needs to have a little shimmer in it because it has to be slightly gold and have a little bit of depth of movement. I don't know, I can visualise it. It's amazing, and you can genuinely visualise it. Visualisation is like massive, isn't it? I, you know, um, I tried doing it from um, like meditating and things like that to really try and help with visualisation because I'm quite keen on like mapping out and goal setting like you were describing. Yeah. Um, but visualising, it's been something I've really had to practise. It doesn't come naturally to me. And when my kids are talking, even when I'm reading a story, they can, if I'm doing like the three little pigs or something like that, they genuinely get really worried about this big bad wolf because in both their heads, they're, they're seeing yeah, something yeah, right before them. Yeah, visualised it, yeah. Have you always been no, able to visualise stuff? I don't know, I think so. I don't know. I don't know, is that weird? Maybe I should and, get that checked. No, I think it's amazing. Maybe I need to see a therapist about my visualisation <laughs> problems. No, I mean, I do. Do you think like um, that? Uh, or you just went with what you were saying I think agree? so I think a lot of makeup artists probably do don't they because yeah. you have to visualize what you're doing I mean I think the thing is is that I think visually my brain works in quite an artistic way probably mm -hmm. but I can't physically connect my brain to my hands so I can't manifest what's going on in my head but I can visualize it yeah but then I'm also oh. um quite sort of like I said quite mathematical but then I don't know. I think a lot of maths is quite artistic, but oh, there's um, massive connections, isn't there? I mean, I do sort of, you know, between you know, maths to me is a sort of fusion of artistic and linguistic. And it's a different language sometimes, but yeah, um, I do like numbers. Yeah, I, 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 I like numbers I like, and I like yeah. a spreadsheet. <laughs> I love a spreadsheet. I know it's really sad, but I really love a spreadsheet. I can like look at something and pop mistakes pop out on me. Yeah, no, I'm the same with spreadsheets. Uh, exactly the same. Yeah. So, I can literally then, spot a, a, a formulation error a mile off. It's so weird, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, that's when you like looking at, at data like that, definitely things can mm. jump out. It probably comes with more practice, doesn't it? So, and then where did um, Ruby and Millie lead and what direction did you go? So, so I, I really didn't like the front end of it. I, I really found that quite difficult. I mean, I still do. I find it just really, um, I think, of all, out of everything I ever do, I find the sort of being the front person quite an enormous responsibility and quite exhausting. So I moved to America, moved back to America where I lived before and took my family with and um, still worked York on the brand. But somewhere else? No, I went to LA this time okay. and um, lived in LA and um, we, um, but, but the benefit to that was I could get up at six and I get up really early anyway. I've always been an early riser, but that's because probably I grew up in LA where everyone gets up early and goes to bed early and uh, work from sort of six to about 10 here, maybe 11, 12. But then I had the afternoons with my kids. So that was good. Um, 
so I lived there for quite a few years, but I would come back to London every six weeks. So I would fly back in. Um, and then um, I lived there for about maybe seven, seven years, I think it was. Um, and then my mum got a bit unwell and um, I think I just got bored of it. You know, it just wasn't for me. Yeah. So I thought I'll come back to London. And, um, but I couldn't have just stuck with what, with doing what I was doing. And I came back to London, not sure of what to do. And then Ruby and I had always said that one of the things that we always did was we always agreed on everything. So if one of was us didn't Ruby agree, still in, Was Ruby still in London? Sorry, Tim, was Ruby yeah. in London still? So you were working? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's how the hours could work. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, but, you know, I mean, we spoke to each other every day. So, yeah. but, but one of the things that um, uh, we had always agreed on was that if we didn't both agree on something, it wouldn't happen okay so but we also agreed that if if we if one of us didn't want to do it anymore we would have to consider stopping and yeah. I, I don't think either one of us at that point wanted to do it it's been you know 17 years or something eight, seven, wow. 16 years. and um it was just getting to the point where it was just not viable anymore products were launching with our names on it it didn't really carry our aesthetic we weren't very much involved in the product development side it just stuff like that happens eventually yeah um and so we both we quit and uh, we carried on working together, but we quit our own brand. And then I bumped into a friend of mine who was a stylist. Um, so what were you still doing together? Oh, we were developing other brands for other people. I did a oh, brand okay. for Ruby called Ruby Hammer Recommends. And then we did some other brands for other people. We developed a team line for uh super drug called scarlet and crimson with slg yeah. beauty slg cosmetics yeah what they're called now um so we just did other projects and then i bumped into this friend of mine who i'm i met at the same time as ruby called Anne marie solovey and she lived around the corner for me well actually i bumped into a girl called romaine lily who's a stylist fashion stylist who used to work at the guardian and um and she was like, oh, I'm just going for a drink with Anna. Do you want to come? So I thought, okay. And I just moved back to London. So I was like, great, I haven't seen her in ages. And um, we went for a drink and we were just talking about beauty. And one of the things that struck us both was that retail had been really flat. Oh, and the bit I missed out was that when Space NK first opened, it was um, a fashion retail store yeah. in Thomas Neal Centre in the basement. And I... Um, opened Shuemura in there after I had opened it in Harvey Nicks. Okay. And I ran that little, there was a little concession, a little Shuemura concession. And I think it took more money than the rest of the store. Wow. Which is sort of why it ended up being Space NK Apothecary. Oh, okay. Um, that was funny enough. My wow. little cousin is now a makeup artist. Yeah. She ran it. She worked there. So my cousin is now a jobbing makeup artist, but. I always like to hire people I knew so I could I trusted them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so um yeah, so we ran that and then Nikki moved upstairs and made Space NK Apothecary, which had Shuamora Keels, because she realized that bringing over American Japanese products was a good idea. Which yeah, was very oh, clever. Amazing. But since Space NK, which was 93 94 so space and k shoe opened in there and probably maybe 92 maybe the apothecary opened 94 i mean nothing really had happened in retail since then certainly nothing exciting so we opened a retail shop and and i called beauty mart and um we just brought in things that we wanted to sell really and then we decided to um pop up wherever we went for lunch with Mary Portis <laughs> and she goes you want to go highbrow lowbrow eyebrow we have no idea what that meant but we <laughs> thought, let's just do what Mary's told us she knows what she's doing and then um so we launched in <laughs> Harvey Nichols Shoreditch um we went Red Church Street so we did um oh god we just looked, popped up everywhere Liverpool we just kept popping up and then popped up in Topshop uh, and now it's online and um, we just kept moving with it wherever we wanted to go really but we did launch all the French French pharmacy first Korean we were the first to bring over the Korean brands um, was all that self-funded from like previous successes Millie, or friends and family friends yeah. and family and self yeah okay 
and then um yeah we had some friends and family um uh but obviously it was also really a difficult time to launch retail because yeah. you know obviously retail's sort of struggling um so um but you know it was it was we you know i want to say friends and family i mean we even got friends and family concession rates at harvey nicks i mean you couldn't have had a better concession model <laughs> um you know there was sort of um it was um you know, I'd known Danny Rinaldi for years and we'd worked together for years. So it was, you know, it was a nice, it felt like going home really in a funny way. It was yeah. really good fun. And Diana, my lovely sidekick in the backbone of the British Beauty Council, yeah, she's <laughs> worked, really worked there as well. Thing, yeah. yeah, she worked there as well. Um, wow, okay. So, um, yeah, no, it was great. Really loved it. It was good fun. I mean, I guess the thing for me was the only real shocker for me was that, um, you know, back in the Ruby and Millie days and back when we did Evader or Tweez Man or, you know, Shoe or whatever it was that we, you know, I worked on, um, you really did get sort of your evenings and weekends free for the most part. Yeah. I mean, not Saturdays, but Sundays, but when, you, when you're when you online, e-commerce, it is literally a 24 hour, seven day a week job. And I'm really a control freak and I don't like uh i've got real sort of passion for customer service yeah if people likewise. don't get what they want and they are emailing you at 4 a.m on a saturday i am on it <laughs> you know i am responding at 4 a.m on a saturday yeah and i and i that just you have notifications on, on your phone then i don't actually but i right, still okay. i have a sort of sixth sense i think about it you i don't have any tracking. notifications on on um the only thing i get notified of is um whatsapp yeah. But other than yeah. that, I know I keep all that off. I even have do not disturb now. I learned my lesson, you know, obviously the first sort of year or so of beauty mart, I was like all over it. And then I thought I can't live like this. This yeah, is too stressful. For me. People, is it? people are going to have to wait for a response. Um, and then, um, but obviously it was good that I kept an eye on things because I would say, you know, we were managing this sort of, you know, new back, back end systems. Cause you know, you've always got with the internet, it's always something, there's always a yeah. new, platform or a new plug-in or something and I would notice that um, I could see the trap Google Analytics became like my boyfriend I could see the traffic coming <laughs> I could see junkie, where the spreadsheet so it's another right, spreadsheet yeah. yeah of course graph anything for a graph and then I could see where it was coming from I see the acquisition also because I do PR and marketing as well I could see oh my god Sally Hughes has just written about this nail oil quick guys up the quantities I'll call the supplier, buy more, because you could see all the traffic coming. Yeah. So. Um, amazing. Yeah, really, I really, I liked, I liked sort of um, the 360 sort of bit of um, selling. I like the PR, the marketing, the selling, the buying, and I like joining it all up. I really enjoyed it. Um, but the bit that I really struggled with was, you know, yet again, and I guess this was, from, you know, sure more being a concession, Aveda big concessions, Tweezerman being concession, Ruby and Millie going into boots, Beauty Mart, maybe we did have our own front door a couple of times, but for the most part with pop-ups, you're in somebody else's environment. Yeah. I really struggled with, I guess all the way along, it was, um, the goal was to uh, make that shopping environment how I would want it. And it doesn't matter what you do when you're in somebody else's environment, you're in somebody else's environment. Yeah. And it becomes, um, you just become absorbed by it and become homogenized by their, the, the master environment. Sure. Um, and so, and, and I'd often said to um, my clients or people that I worked with that I really hated the brand dominant conversation and that, a conversation in store should be a woman-to-woman -woman conversation. I don't want to have a conversation with somebody that doesn't understand me, yeah. which is now so relevant in that sort of the influencer model because when the bloggers came on and everyone was like freaking out about it and I just thought they're just like the consultants that we'd always wanted because yeah. they are having a female-to-female -female or male-to-female or male-to-male or whatever it might be, but a person-to-person -person conversation with a consumer Whereas, and the reason for their influence is that's what we'd always really wanted on the shop floor. Um, 
and it was just it's been so hard to break down that brand dominant conversation you know buy my nine products you know yeah which is so unrealistic um whereas you know bloggers have these this platform whether it be their bedroom or wherever or their living room to sort of say don't buy their nine products buy this from this person buy this from this brand buy this from this website i found this in tokyo or wherever and put it all together and that was what the shop floor needed to be and what beauty mart was really about in a way yeah okay that makes um, sense. yeah so and then um and it's sort of just bubbling along underneath i've always sort of done pr as well because i've never enough to do and um, <laughs> <laughs> um but no that i've always i've always really loved just dropped my pen um and then um yeah, you haven't been doodling yet have you no, but I've been playing with my oil. I've got this really nice little um, Japanese nail oil, which I really do love. But I've been because I had a manicure yesterday, so I like to oil my cuticles after I have a <laughs> nice nail. Yeah, they were quite good. I went a bit Barbie. Yeah, went a bit bar. I went a bit over the top on the pink, but anyway, um, it was feeling a little bit like yesterday was a little dull. Um, so. Um, and then, and then obviously the British Beauty Council came around because there was a lot of chatter about, you know, I still feel like I haven't made a mark on the industry and I still but felt like... you've done and achieved so far, you still don't... Oh, I just feel yeah. like I just, you know, really wanted to do something that was kind of quite powerful and really game-changing. And every time you think you're doing something game-changing, I feel like I don't quite get as far as I want it to go. Um, so, you know... I think with um, with the British Beauty Council, I wasn't alone in my thinking about um, what needed to be done to upgrade our industry. And I felt like a lot of the challenges that were facing the industry were reputational. Yeah. Okay. And that you could really up the reputation of the industry in many ways by pulling it all together hair, beauty, nails, makeup, you know, spa, et cetera, you know, product manufacturing, uh, retail design, you know, ideation, product development, et cetera. Um, if you pulled that all together and then you valued it, you would give the industry sort of something to hang its hat on a little bit because um, there wasn't really any sort of conclusive evidence of what the industry was worth. So, um, and also there was no real definition. So nobody really understood what the industry was. So yeah. if you look at the standard industrial classifications, the SICK codes, manufacturing is in one section, but it's not defined as beauty manufacturing. Yeah. Hair and other beauty treatments are in another sub code next to funeral, well, within a code 96 called, which is funeral services, laundry services, hair and other beauty treatments. So the idea was is to define the industry so the government had something that would almost indicate how those codes and how we should define our industry. Because if you have elevated industry classifications or more accurate industry classifications, the government won't refer to us as massage parlors. Yeah, okay. As they no, did as they did during COVID because Well I was just about to say you you you've been like really pivotal and influential, like as a voice, haven't you, during that Well, I don't know if we've been influential, we've been loud. You've definitely been loud. <laughs> yeah. Um Yeah, but because a lot of the frustration goes back to these sick codes. Right. <laughs> basically are so outdated. They were developed in nineteen forty eight. They've not been really moved on since. That's so insane. you know, until we um can sort of try to get those moving in the right direction. I don't think we're going to get, you know, very far. Um, and, and so anyway, so, so, so ideally the, we wanted to define the industry and then value the industry and then look at the challenges facing the industry. So diversity, inclusion, mental health, wellbeing, men's grooming, um, you know, where that sits within the market and, and, you know, and how to promote that. Um, and also to how to, make the industry not seen as vacuous yeah and when um, did you when did you set it up 2018 end of 2018 yeah so okay. it's really only been a year and a half and obviously the past six months have been very covid yeah yeah you know focused um 
But well, if, just... if, they, if you weren't around, though, they, they, what would have been the voice really pushing it during that time? No, it's amazing. I mean, I guess the thing is, this that it kind of, yeah. well, I mean, the thing is, is that it seemed really obvious to me that the industry needed something, but it was very difficult to kind of get people to buy into it at first until, of course, there's a crisis. So unfortunately, we've proved our worth, but we've, you know, it's taken a crisis like this to sort of, um, for people to sort of go, oh, yeah, maybe it was a good idea to get the industry together. Um, and, you know, it's, um, it's something that is part of our manifesto from the outset. Yeah. It's just that other industry bodies are now, a lot of the industry bodies are trade bodies and they all have a place. I, f I do really believe that. And a lot of the um, parts of the moving parts of the industries will have different organizations that represent them. So manufacturers will have CTPA, retailers yeah. will have COPRA, um, you know, uh, UK spa represent the spa associate, you know, represent the spas and, Babtac Beauty Therapists and Hairdressers National Hairdressing Federation or the Hair and Barber Council, but no one had ever brought everyone together before. Yeah, when you, when you lift it like that, it just feels really fragmented, doesn't it? And then it's trying to get that one voice again. Mm. Yeah. Have you hit any... Um... And, I, and I do feel like we've been... I do think we've been really successful in that. Yeah, most definitely. Have you had any like brick walls or people trying to... I, you said about people... Oh, yeah, taking... yeah, yeah. Tons. Really? Yeah, I mean, I guess they're more, they're more, um, well, a lot of people, two things that happen is one, when you've got a good idea, uh, everyone is sort of slightly worried about you're going to steal their thunder. So, of yeah. course, you get a lot of reluctance, but actually, bit by bit, I think we've chipped away and we've shown that we're not really here to sort of steal anyone's thunder. Actually, what our idea is, is quite original. And then what happens is, is that people turn around and nick your idea and they say, I've got this great idea. Let's all have a meeting where everyone gets together and, you know, we're just one voice. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> it's a bit Johnny come lately for me. But anyway, you know, that's part of being sort of, um, um, I guess that's part of being renegade is that you've got to always be, accept that people will follow yeah. and sort of try to take credit for something that you've already done. But you're meant to be able to position that as being flattered, aren't you, I think? <laughs> I mean, really I, I think, you know, I got, you got, I got past that with Ruby. I mean, listen, I had a brand that was in hundreds of stores, you know, if yeah. people copy what we did, I mean, our li lipsticks, those, you know, twist up lips, lipsticks, I mean, lip glosses, copied by everyone virtually, you know, it's not like I've been there, sort of have had that. I know what that feels like. And it really hurt the first time around. Yeah. But then you get to the point and you just think, whatever. Because you know what, you're, what you're, you're always 10 steps ahead of them. That's that's the thing. I mean, I think that probably is a real lesson learned. A lot of people will feel that they've developed something and then two years later, somebody else will develop something. Sometimes it's even better than what you've developed and they might yeah. get a bigger voice or more traction. But the fact is, is that if you are a real innovator, you'll always be 10 steps ahead. Yeah, no, that's good advice. So you've always got to be thinking in that mindset, haven't you? That you've always got to be... Yeah. innovating or you will get lost along the yeah, way yeah yeah totally totally oh amazing so what and what um what's been the hardest thing out of all that it, it feels really like clearly networking is amazing so you've you've gone from one thing to another and you've known people along the way and you, you, it's led all the way to here has it been what's been like the, the hardest or has it all been fun and I've, I've really enjoyed all of it I mean you mm. know like even when like I said when you develop something someone rips you off oh even that you know after a while you start to laugh at it um what's the hardest thing um growth managing it or growth I just am not a good growth person I'm really a good launch person right I'm a okay. good innovator I think um but when it comes to three years down the line, which is why I've got three-year tenure at the British Beauty Council as CEO, I might take yeah. another role within the British Beauty Council, but it won't be CEO. Um, I, um, I think that um, I, I'm not the person to then grow it. I can't get it to the next stage. That's just not my thing. That's, I oh. find, really hard. Okay. Well, I don't really have any interest in it in a funny way. Yeah. No, I sense. like the launch bit. I like to, I mean, I guess the hard lesson is I've learned to hand it over to somebody else at that point. And what's, what's the plan then, launching like, or handing over this baton for the, is that um, 
someone's voted in or are they yeah someone would be voted in i mean i've we've got um an executive board an advisory board an affiliate board um and um i guess we'll take nominations and there'll be a select committee and somebody will uh, choose the next ceo yeah Oh, can't wait. <laughs> can't wait. I literally can't so wait. You've got this roadmap. Um, you've got to be picking everything else off first. And you keep rewriting I've just seen an roadmap. email come in from our chairperson uh, about my roadmap. I don't even want to look at it because she's going to pull it <laughs> oh, apart, bless her. But anyway, she's right to pull it apart because it wasn't perfect. But um, I've just, you know, you've got to write the draft and then let, let everyone get, you know, get their hands on it. Um, yeah, amazing. Well, thanks for everything you've done in the industry. I think it's incredible what you're doing. And, um, Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I enjoy it. It's not, you know, wouldn't do it if you didn't enjoy it, I think. No, definitely. Well, I love the industry anyway. anyway. I love being in it. I can't believe I stumbled into it. So, no, it's been amazing. It's just such a great, just looking at all the stuff on your shelves behind. Is that product? Yeah, some product. Yeah. Just you can't recognize it back there, can you? It's a, I do actually recognize that box because I think you sent me one of those before. <laughs> yeah, I tried to put it out some places. Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah, I need to send yeah. you another one just as a bit of a. Yeah, reminder. no, I mean, I'm like, you know, I'm, you know, I love a bit of product. I really do. It's definitely yeah. my. Oh, I'll, yeah. I'll get one sent out as a thank you for. I'm trying to lower my consumption. Yeah. You know, working very hard. We've just actually completed a report um, on. Uh, we did a report on diversity and inclusion last year. We've just done a survey this year based on a think tank and we're just about to launch a sustainability report that we that's been quite a big piece of work for us so that'll be launching at the end of october so keep an eye out for that oh definitely that'll be fascinating really that's interesting. Like yeah on everyone's agenda right now especially top of ours yeah but we've got we've taken it a little bit step further we've got really good action points so oh perfect actually really do yeah so be really good to pull some you know some bits out of that and um, yeah, that'll be great as a business we're trying before we go like head first down a route we're trying to identify what it means to all the brands that we're working with and then make sure that it kind of fits in with what they want so it'd be interesting to read this yeah it'll be it really for manufacturing it will be really um, i think it's quite groundbreaking because it really does build a sort of coalition yeah um it really does put it back in our hands so, oh awesome yeah, yeah great. Look at that. cool well thanks again for today millie yeah, of time. course. Anytime. Thank you. Lovely Thanks, to see Diana you. Diana for like sorting it all out. That was amazing. I know. I know. I'm sorry for like some moving target, but you can imagine no, no. a government announcement. I mean, it's like you asked me about how my week away was. I can't even remember if I had one. And then when I did <laughs> remember, I just remembered I worked throughout it. So it wasn't much. Yeah, of a it was just a change of scenery. Yeah. That was all it was. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Of course. Anytime. Have a, have a great day. Yeah, you too. Cheers, Millie. Take care. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye.